We're going to read together from Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 12, um, verse 13, just a short, short passage. Mark 12, verse 13. We're in the context of uh, confrontation, and um, we read last week about um, the chief priests, we talked about the scribes, we talked about the teachers of the law being the Sanhedrin, this sort of ruling body of uh, Judea at the time. And in verse 13 picks it up, it's the same sort of passage, it's the same flow. Later they, that would be those sort of ruling authorities, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Just very quickly, this is the second time you have come across the Pharisees and the Herodians working together. The first time was in chapter 3, verse 6, where um, after Jesus healed someone on a Sabbath, the Pharisees, it says, went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So these um, people, they come, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and there's part of these questions that Jesus is being confronted on. And this one's about tax. The Herodians, this sort of family, or this grouping that would be close to authority. The Pharisees were working out how to be holy in an unholy place, and they come and they ask about tax. Tax question was a massive question. In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about resurrection and then about the commands. But the tax question was just a massive, massive question because it wasn't really just about should you pay your tax or not. It's really about what do you think about the government? What do you think about those in authority? What do you think about those who are leading? 500 years since the Reformation, and some would say it started this month, in October. Um, and what Martin Luther did, this uh, monk in Saxony, in Germany, uh, did was he wrote down 95 um, concerns he had about the church, the Catholic Church. Everybody was Catholic in those days. The Catholic Church. And he went to the church and said, actually, the church has become corrupt. And one of the things that he said about the church being corrupt was that the church had taken the form of power and that led to corruption. So at one time, uh, when, when Martin Luther in 1517 was sort of saying, actually, we need to renew the church, we need to reform the church, one of the things he was really concerned about was the relationship between church and power, church and the state. And he kicked off a whole movement that now becomes known as Protestant. But he, and he did because he was protesting against what was going on. 
And I don't think he would have had any idea what would have actually happened. But from Europe, at one time, being completely under the control of the, the Pope, and all the rulers having to pay obedience to the Pope, and the Pope being the most powerful man in Europe, suddenly people began to realise, actually, the church and the state have a different relationship. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Denmark um, for the weekend when I wasn't here. And um, <laughs> on account of me not being omnipresent. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was in Denmark. And um, really interesting Denmark. So I'm, I'm kind of in this culture that I know nothing about. And in Denmark, everybody in Denmark is part of the church, unless you opt out. You're automatically a member of the church, the Lutheran church. And what that means is, if you're a, ch a state church, everybody, you pay 1% of your tax, and the church gets it. So the church that I was a part of, which is a large, growing, thriving church, they take offerings, but every week they give them away because they don't need the money. They've got more money than they, they know what to do with. And it's kind of an interesting sort of relationship between church and state. Now, one of the downsides of that was it's quite possible to have leaders of the church who don't believe in Jesus. Or never worship. The Americans, when America was formed, they really were concerned about this relationship between church and state. So you had these people from England on the whole, or Holland, going to America and saying, actually, we want the freedom to practice our, our own religion. We don't want the state to get involved at all. And so they've had this tension between church and state all the time, that actually it shouldn't be together because of the fear of power. And in England, of course, we went down the middle path because of Henry VIII. And what happened in England was we didn't separate church and state, and we didn't become a state church in that sense that they are in Denmark, in, in parts of not just Denmark, but Germany and other countries too. What we did was we decided that um, the church would have a real place of authority, but we, we've tried to give people freedom as well. But it, it is interesting that when Queen Elizabeth was um, the second was uh, crowned, Apparently what happened in private before the ceremony uh, happened was she was undressed all the way down just to sort of like a shift, a sort of like a, you know, an undergarment. And the Archbishop of Canterbury gave her all the clothes to wear. It's a very powerful symbol. That actually, because there's that sort of vestige that the king or the queen is placed there by God. Which we would probably struggle with people not quite involved in that. But this relationship between church and state is fascinating. It's still being played out. What is the relationship between the two? Today is the day when your old pound coins are no longer valid tender. And uh, only the, the new ones. So if you've got pound coins down the back of your sofa, get to Poundland this afternoon. <laughs> no good. It's hard to get worked up about it, isn't it? Because it's kind of like they don't, they, there's no pull with this. But when I was thinking about how this conversation between the Pharisees and the Herodians and Jesus centered on a coin, I began to wonder, I mean, just like a sort of like a whimsical wonder, why do we have those people on our notes? And then I began to wonder, 
who is on the Mount of Olives. So I went to the Bank of England, and they said, this is why we have people on our bank notes. We celebrate individuals that have shaped British thought, innovation, leadership, values, and society. The people we have on our money are the people that, the Bank of England at least, think, say something about our country. They kind of like represent the best. It's kind of like, that's what Britain's about. And it's kind of like the, what we do get worked up about, um, long before Brexit, was the idea of we want to keep our own currency. Because it says something about it. So, this is just very quick. Who's on the back of the five pound note? Who's on the back of a ten pound note? Yeah, we've got a plastic one and a paper one still. Who's on the paper one? You're very close. You're very close to Charles. Um, Charles Darwin, Charles Jane Austen, and on a twenty-pound note. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. Adam Smith is actually the correct answer, not Benny Hill. Um, or Benny Hill, or Benny Hill, either of them. Adam Smith, the economist. Now, and most of you won't know this because you won't use these very often. What's on the back of a £50 note? Any idea? Never seen one? No. Matthew Bolton and James what? And you're going, who? <laughs> Uh, they were involved in, in, in steam engines and machineries. Uh, so what you've got is um, the, the sort of Bank of England in our country sitting at the heart of, uh, of sort of the establishment, saying we want to put people on our notes that say something about who we think Britain's, Britain's best represented by, and those are the uh, five. And they keep changing them, and uh, they will keep changing them, but they kind of want to say our money says something about us. This is, you know, you can think about this as much as you like or as little as you like, but it's kind of interesting because it's just a piece of paper. Actually, no, 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 no. It says something about who we are. Well, this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians is exactly the same. The coins said something about the situation they were in. So they came to Jesus and they said, should we pay the poll tax? The poll tax was a tax that was only imposed upon conquered people. If you were a free Roman, you didn't have to pay it. So that's why they went to Jesus, because Jesus, uh, in Judea at the time, should we pay this poll tax or not? And the reason they were trying to trap him was because depending on what Jesus said next would mark him out as belonging to some group or other. If Jesus had said, yep, yeah, pay poll tax, ah, so you're in favor of the Romans, then, are you? You're part of the establishment. And if you just said, no, don't pay the poll tax, ah, so you're with the revolutionaries, you're with the zealots, are you? It's kind of like, it's, it's one of these situations where really you can't win in the answer. So what Jesus says is, let's look at the coin. And uh, he said, Who's, his head is on the coin. Because they had two sets of currency. One was this, the denarius, the sort of the Roman coin, and you had to pay your poll tax in that. Or for day-to-day -day stuff, the Jews could use a copper coin. So you didn't have the problem. Because the problem with the coin was, here's the picture of the, the head of uh, Caesar at the time, Tiberius uh, Augustus, and here it says, uh, the Son of God, uh, Saviour of the world. 
And on the back is an image of the high priest. It couldn't have been any worse for a Jew to have to use this sort of coin. The Romans didn't do it on purpose, but it kind of expressed who they were. And, and many Jews felt kind of dirty for having to use this coin. We'll come back to it in a minute. This issue between how do Christians relate to the state is one of the questions that actually flows through the New Testament. It's almost like it keeps cropping up, not in every letter, but in many of the letters. Because what they were trying to work out is what does it mean to be a citizen? And for most of the time in the New Testament, you have the norm, and the norm is this. It's in Romans 13. And Paul is writing to Rome and says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then a couple of verses down, he says, that's why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And Timothy says the same thing, and in Peter it says the same thing, and in Titus it says the same sort of thing. The norm, Paul and the writers in the New Testament were saying, the norm is a stable society. But it's more than that. The norm is, Paul is saying, God's put these authorities in place. But remember that these are the authorities that have executed Jesus. These are the authorities that have imprisoned Paul. So Paul is not some sort of like toady in society. He's having a grapple with this. Is God actually involved in this? And Paul will have none of this idea that the world has been left to rack and ruin by God. No, no, no. Let, let's be subject to the governing authorities because... There's no authority except that which God has established. But it's not the only thing that the New Testament says about the state. By the end, so this probably was written, this, this Romans was probably written about 60, 65 AD, around that sort of time. But towards the end of the century, when John, uh, the revelator, is looking at the churches from, Eph uh, uh, from Patmos and writing the revelation... He's seeing a very different society. And it's very neat, this. But Romans 13 is about stable society. Revelation 13 talks about the state. But he's using pictures of beasts and dragons. He says the it, the power, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world, goes on. It forced people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. That number is 666. Now the book of Revelation is very, very, very much worth exploring to, to, to find out what's going on. But the problem when Christians have read the book of Revelation is two things. 
One is they either try and take it very, very literally or they push it all right to the end. But actually, when John is writing, he's writing a pastoral letter to people who are suffering because of the Roman government. In other words, what was beginning to happen, they were Christians almost from the time when Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. Christians had begun to have soft persecution. But by this time, they're beginning to have hard persecution. It's not quite here yet, but in a few years' time, Nero will be Caesar. And when the great fire of Rome happens, Nero will say, I think the Christians caused this. And they, they wrap the Christians up in, um, in, in cloths, set them alight, and Nero uh, used them to light his garden. Because you're a Christian. And they were beginning. It wasn't quite that, but the beginning scene. And what they're saying is actually, what's happened is the government has become... 666. And if the perfect number is 777, which it is biblically, it's kind of like, it's just, it's set itself up against God, but it's, it's anti-God. Jesus, should we pay the tax? Or should we not? And Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Herodians, he said, give to God, to Caesar, what's Caesar's, and then give to God what's God's. Now it's really important to know what he's not saying. He's not saying there's part of the world which is like God's, and then there's the rest of the world which isn't God's. He's not having that sacred secular divine. But what he's saying is you can only give to Caesar what is his rightfully. Someone called Jim Wallace, who is a, an American uh, pastor, leader, theologian, and activist, he said this, I believe in the separation of church and state, absolutely, but I don't believe in the separation of public life from our values, our basic values, and for many of us, our religious values. You see, if you think that there's a sacred part of life and then the secular part of life, it could be, well, we've kind of got like, we've got a Sunday religion and then we've got a, a sort of a Monday to Saturday religion. And it could be, and some people have thought this, that what Jesus is saying is, well, just do your Christian bit, Give to God what's God's. Well, what's God really interested in, we want to say? Well, he's really interested in worship. And he's really interested in church. And he's really interested in Bible study. And Caesar? Well, he has lordship over everything else. But actually what Jesus is doing is exactly the opposite. <coughs> he's saying, actually, Caesar only has a very small part of this. The rest is God's. It's still being played out. In yesterday's newspaper, the Times newspaper, there was an interview with Arlene Foster, who's the um, controversial in some sectors, but the leader of the DUP. And actually, the interview was a really fair interview. They talked uh, very well of her. But one of the things that Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, said about her stand and her party stand on some of what we might want to call traditional Orthodox Christian issues, sort of the ethical issues, she said, the problem is this. I can't have a faith that operates on Sunday morning that I switch off on Sunday evening until the following Sunday morning. She said, I have to have a faith that actually is consistent throughout, and that gets me into trouble. Now, whatever you might think of her, it's still being worked out. Because in many cases, in many senses, what society is happy with, they don't mind that you go to church on the whole. 
They don't care that you believe in Jesus. They don't care that you have a very different... The, the songs we sang this morning about the hope we have, they don't, nobody's really bothered about that, as long as we just do it here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, do it here. They'll think you're no more strange than anywhere else. Last night we were at the Masonic Hall. I asked what we told for a while before I listened to the song. I was desperate to go upstairs, but I couldn't. And my mum allowed us. I wanted to go and look, look around. But the Masonic Hall is kind of like, and it is. Now this is the world I don't understand. The Masonic Hall, where you've got these masons, these men who go and they do these sort of strange rituals. Most of us don't mind that they do that, but we're really bothered if it if it affects Monday's court decision. You can do what you like on Friday night. But Monday? Well, that's often what happens with us. This idea that you have a faith, and faith's great for Sunday morning or Sundays, but, but please don't let it intrude on Monday. But Jesus actually is saying the opposite. He's saying Caesar's power is limited. Give him the coin. Because whose image is it? It's Caesar's. And give to God what's God's. Well, what is God's image? We are created in the image of God. So what? The truth about all this is it's all very interesting, but nobody ever asks us. Which is why I asked this week for some of you to give me some of your logos of the places where you work, or the things you're involved with, or the voluntary groups you're a part of. And it was great, thank you for all of you that, uh, that did. Because all of these places, all of these organisations, all of this, they all have a culture of their own. A way of doing things around here. And they shape you, and they shape the way you think and to shape the way you act. And as long as you act in line with the culture, nobody minds. One of the truths about all of this stuff and much else is that God created all of this so that his creation would thrive. But sometimes I think the powers of the enemy get involved and they twist them against his own good creation. On Tuesday evening, uh, I was at a meal and I was spending some time talking with a, a lady who has been involved in senior leadership in the school and had been really badly damaged by Ofsted. This is a story that some of you know really well from the inside and others of you will be very aware from the outside. We were talking about what happened to her and it's a very familiar story. It's a story that's been played out so many times in so many different places. And she was reflecting on what had happened to her, and it had nearly destroyed her. And for a period, it really wrecked her life. 20 odd years ago, when Ofsted was introduced, it was out of a good reason. We want our, church, we want our schools to do really well. I was going to say churches. They're not Ofsteading churches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I don't doubt it. So. Don't I look? When Austin 
was introduced, it was like, we want our schools to do really well. We want our children to do really well. It came for all the best reasons. For those of you that are involved in education, probably have no doubt that actually, some of what happens now is twisted exactly the opposite against you. <coughs> something that was introduced for good, something's got involved. And really interesting when you talk to people, because I know people, I know, just, I know people who work as teachers, I know people who work as their heads, I know people who work at the inspector level in education. And everybody says, it's the system. And we want blame, we want someone to say, you can stop this, but actually it's almost like no one can stop it. Well, what's happened at that point? I think powers and principalities have got into to stretch against God's good purpose. How do we deal with our cultures? What does God want of you? The headline of what God wants of you in all of those places and the rest. <laughs> and by the way, that one, that's Jane's house. That's where she works. <laughs> that's for, for everybody that's sort of home-based. What does God want of you? Well, he's going to say this. Jesus is going to say this very clearly. The two commands are, will you love God and will you love people? That will come. But in the meantime, what does that actually look like? And with this, I just want to finish. The first thing you're called to do with any organisation you're involved with is to pray for them. Not just to pray for the people that are involved, though you must do that, but ask them to pray for the organisation itself. Pray for the governing authorities. If all of this has been created and is under the creation of God's good grace, and it's the way that God blesses his world, can this be used for his glory? Whether that's um, Electricity Northwest, the BBC, the Vine, or... And that one, uh, you may not have noticed that one, but Voices of the Vine, that's a, that's a new one. That's, a, that's the choir that is being developed in the Vine. All right. The Vine itself, Oxo, other meat-based products are available. <laughs> Prison service. What does it mean to pray? What does it look like when you start praying? It's not just prayer for personal safety or personal security, but actually pray that this organisation would be used for the glory of God. What does it mean to stand and to take a stand? What are you standing for? Will you stand for righteousness? you stand for Jesus? you stand, putting it really simply, and it sounds like sort of just church talk, but you stand to love God and to love people. You stand for his purpose in the midst of it. And sometimes when you stand and you take a stand, some of you know it causes you to suffer. And this movement of prayer, of taking a stand and suffering, is not unknown in the New Testament. It's not, if that happens to you, it's not that you've done something wrong, it's not that you've taken a wrong turn, it's actually that you're in line with what it means to be people of the kingdom of God. And if you don't suffer, or if you do suffer, what do we do? We offer it. We offer our work back to God. Because we've been asked, we've been asked, whose coin, whose head's on the coin? Well, 
it sees us. So we're going to offer our work. We're going to do good work. We're going to offer our best back. But what's God's? All of that's God's. All of that's God's. And the kingdom and the people of the kingdom have to work it through in that context. So what does it mean to be a person of the kingdom of God working for Berry College? What does it mean to be a person of the kingdom of God working at the clubhouse golf place? What does it mean to be a person of the kingdom of God involved in the unions, or involved in education, or involved in healthcare? Jesus said, they tried to trap him. And Jesus refused to be trapped, because he knew whose he was. And this morning we've sung about the future and whose the future is. Tomorrow, this time tomorrow, that's where you'll be. Living it out. So pray for those organisations you're engaged with. Take a stand when you need to. Stand for righteousness. Stand for, the Christ, stand for Christ. Stand for the kingdom. And if you suffer, there's no way around that except to say we would want to say let's suffer together. And for all of us, let's offer the work of our hands. To the God who saves, the image, his image, although marred, is stamped all over this world. The image of God, not just in the individual, but the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. They tried to trap Jesus, they refused to be trapped. He calls us to live, and to live for him. We pray together. And I uh, just want to pray for those of you who Some of us kind of like this would be like, well, that's interesting, maybe. But actually, for some of you, this will be very, very much a life issue of, well, how am I going to be? How will I cope? What will I do? And what I want to pray is that you'll have wisdom. Wisdom to know how to be in the situations, how to take a stand, what it means to follow Christ in the organisations that you're part of. And without extending this unnecessarily, <coughs> if you want us to include you in the prayer, then just stand. If you say, actually, that's what I need, I need the wisdom to know. Then just stand. And we'll just, it's kind of like a, a physical thing for you to say, that's what I want, God. Would you fill me with the spirit, spirit of wisdom? And it allows us to pray together for you. So if you kind of know that in your work context or in your voluntary uh, organisations, you want to be the people who've got wisdom to know how to do this stuff, then just take this. Stand up now. Lord, the sermon can't say everything. These are big issues that we spend most of our lives thinking through. So Lord, will you please, the Spirit of God, will you fill us with your Spirit so that we might have the wisdom that comes from God? 
Lord, will you give us words to say? Will you help us to know what it means to identify ourselves with the culture and pray for them that your blessing would be upon them? Even when, perhaps particularly when, they're making bad decisions or unfair decisions. Lord, guard us against the cynicism and the hardness. Lord, may our hearts be soft. Lord, we pray that we would take a stand, a stand for the kingdom. The Lord, we would take a stand for righteousness and for justice and for mercy and for love and for Christ. Give us words to say, we pray. Give us wisdom to know how to do that. And Lord, when we find ourselves suffering, Lord, we pray that we won't have to do it on our own. That we would know your presence, but we would also know the presence of those who are. Lord, for those who don't suffer, I pray that you give us insight and sensitivity to those who do. And you give us wisdom to know what to say, or even wisdom to know how to say anything. Lord, we offer you the work of our lives. Whether it's at home, raising a family, whether it's at the other end of life where we're helping others raise families. Whether it's voluntary or whether it's paid, it matters little. Lord, we offer you the work of our hands. We pray that they would be, our work would be used for your glory. Whether we're making decisions for others, or serving others, or just making sure the admin works well, Lord, we offer you all of this. 